If you have your Bibles, would you please take them out and turn in them to the book of Exodus, chapter 34. You can follow along in the bulletin if you'd like, but if you have your copies of the Bible, I would encourage you to use them. Exodus, chapter 34. We're still going through the book of Exodus together as a church, and the last four Sundays we've been in this section, sort of chapters 32, 33, and 34 are their own little section in the book of Exodus that are defined by the golden calf incident together with all of the aftermath that comes out of that. So the the golden calf itself is in chapter 32, but we have several chapters that follow it. Uh, in which we're continuing to see the sort of the ramifications and what God does in response to it and how everything plays out. There's so many issues that are brought up uh, that we are seeing resolved and we're seeing exactly what God does in response to the sin of his people. And that's what we continue to see today in Exodus 34. I'm going to read for us from verse 10 through verse 28. Exodus 34 10 through 28. And again, if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's holy word today? This is Exodus 34, starting in verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you take of the daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. 
And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you have given your word to your people. Lord, to, to give us wisdom, to give us knowledge, to give us instruction in the ways of the Lord. So we ask now that you would be our teacher, that the power of your spirit will open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, may apply your word to our hearts. And Father, we ask that we may not simply turn the pages and read the words and go on our way, but Father, may your words make a lasting impression on our hearts. May we know them, may we learn to love them, and may we obey them, and may we treasure and love Jesus Christ our Savior because of them. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. These chapters that we're going through here, 32 through 34, are, are well-known stories, this golden calf incident and some of the aftermath that comes from it. And I think one of the things that makes these chapters and these stories resonate with us so much is that the story that it tells of sin and its aftermath is one that, that simply resonates with us. It's a story that's familiar to us. It, it paints a picture for us of the life of believers as we know it. it. It matches pretty well with our experience of the Christian life, that we know that our experience is not simply one of going from, from success to success to success, but, but our experience is like the Israelites' experience. Right? The, there's sin. There's temptation and there's failure. And then there's dealing with God and, and going to Him for His grace and for His forgiveness. So, so just like the Israelites, we are used to this scenario. We will hear God's word and like them we are, we'll say, yes, Lord, we'll obey. And we're, we're filled with zeal and enthusiasm for God's word for maybe, you know, 30 minutes until again temptation arises and we find ourselves unable to resist and, and we give in to sin. Maybe we sometimes even revel in that until the Lord brings conviction and we feel bad and we give in and, and we listen then, we go back to the Lord and we seek him out for his word of grace to his people. It's somewhat of a, a very imperfect circle, but it's one that, that we know very well. We see it in our own lives. But part of the beauty of this story as well is that we see not only the sin, but we see so much of God's grace. Even as Romans 6 tells us that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Isn't that what we see in this passage? We see sin. We see sin abounding in this issue with the golden calf. That is abounding sin. And yet, in the chapters that follow, we see that God's grace is even more abundant to this people who have sinned against him so heinously. We see his grace in forgiving their sin and promising that he will still be faithful to his word, that yes, he will go with the people. He will lead them through the wilderness into the promised land that his grace is there. And in this chapter, this passage that we've just read, we see God renewing his covenant with them. Right? That has to be the big question of this story of sin and idolatry. What happens to the covenant? God has just made a covenant with his people, and now the people have been so quick to go astray. What becomes of the covenant? And so we see in this passage God is renewing his covenant. 
he's revealing more of himself to his people. Just as he's revealed his name, he's revealed his grace and his mercy, that he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, he continues now to reveal himself and renew his covenant to his people. And so the ending of this story is not going to be with failure and distress and loss of the sin of idolatry, but rather the ending of the story is now with God and his grace. Renewing his covenant with his people. Revealing himself. So I want us to see just the three steps of this passage. First, we see God graciously renewing his covenant. We see God graciously revealing his character. And we see God graciously then instructing our hearts. He instructs his people and he instructs us as well. So we see God renewing his covenant. He's renewing it. Verse 10, he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people, I will do marvels. He says he's making a covenant. We might read this as renewing the covenant. This is not something new. Rather, he's simply reinstating, he's reinstituting the covenant that he's made that was begun in chapter 20, the giving of the Ten Commandments, the giving of the law. And then we remember verse, or chapter 24, Moses and 70 of the elders go up Mount Sinai and they, they eat and drink in the presence of God and, and they seal the covenant that God makes. And now he's renewing that. Right? Because of the sin, because of the idolatry, because of the, the threat of judgment there, and now his mercy and grace, he renews his covenant with his people. I think this is one of the, the most beautiful things about this passage and this whole, again, this whole three chapters, 32 through 34, is it kind of shows us the entire life cycle of life with God. Right? Uh, and it's, a, it's a, of course, a historical event. This is something that, that really happened. But nevertheless, we kind of see this as a, a, a type, right? It's an example. This is what life is often like for us. There's a certain progression that we see, and, and we mention this, that, that we sin, right? We do something, again, despite everything God has done for us, uh, and despite our zeal, despite our, our true and honest desire to obey and to walk with God, nevertheless, we we sin, and, and it's always something, right? In this case, Moses took just a little bit too long to come down the mountain, and the people grew impatient. It's always something, and, and we want to blame that thing, but we can't really cast the blame. It's on us. We do something, and so we sin, and, and when we sin, those sins deserve punishment. And that's why in this passage, it's sort of dramatized out for us. We see every step, right? God initially speaks this word of judgment. He initially says, I'm not going to go with you to the promised land. Right? I'm a holy God, you're a sinful people. If I go in your midst, I'm going to smite you down. But then, the mediator intercedes. And so Moses goes up on the mountain to talk with God, and he, he asks God, he sort of pleads with God to be faithful to his word. How else will the nations know who he is and what he's like? And so the mediator intercedes, just like Jesus, for us, always lives to intercede, to make intercession for us, to plead the merits of his blood before the Father so that when we sin, yes, that sin deserves judgment, but what happens is our mediator has, has interceded for us. And because he does that for us, we don't get the wrath our sins deserve, we receive the grace. And so, again, we see every step in this passage, God revealing himself in grace. And he... Just last week, Moses had gone up the mountain and he asked to see God's glory and God preaches this sermon saying, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
But that's not the end when God makes known his character and he reveals his grace. Now, in this, these verses here, now God is renewing his covenant. There's this next step of renewing the covenant relationship that he has with his people. And it includes, again, there's the promises of grace, what God is going to do on behalf of Israel, and there's also these exhortations. There's instruction that, God, that comes with God renewing his covenant with his people. And that's why we read these verses and you heard what's here. Right? This is mostly sort of a re-giving or a reiteration of part of the law. Right? It's instruction. We heard that God is renewing his covenant and that comes with, again, there's the promise of grace that, yes, he is still their God. They are still his people. Despite their sin, he loves them, he's with them, he's faithful to his word, he's not letting them go, he's still their God, he will go with them. But there's also instruction. In light of that, in light of God's renewed grace to his people, how should they then live? And so we hear these words of instruction. This is what we would call a covenant renewal ceremony. God is simply renewing his covenant. He's reminding them both of what he does for them and how they are to live in response to that. In some sense, again, what, what we do every week when we come to corporate worship together is like a mini covenant renewal ceremony where God calls his people to come and to meet with him, to be in his presence. And in light of everything that has happened throughout the week, if we're honest, right, we might expect that we would have no right to come into the presence of God. We would say, who are we that we should be invited to come into God's presence, to be his people, to lay claim to these great promises, and yet every week he invites us to come and he reveals his character to us, that he is a God who is merciful and gracious, that he's slow to anger, that he forgives our sin. And he gives us instruction as well. He teaches us. In light of the grace of God giving to his people, how should we then live? He reveals himself as the God of grace. He renews his, his new covenant with his people. It's not the Mosaic covenant that is renewed. It's the new covenant. And he feeds us and he exhorts us to live lives of new obedience. So that's the theme of this passage. It's covenant renewal. And so he's renewing his covenant and he starts by revealing more of his own character. Look at uh, verse 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now, the Bible records a lot of names for God, right? There are many. Uh, I am who I am. The Ancient of Days. Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh Sabaoth, that means God of armies. There are so many. We, we could go through a long list of the names for God that the Bible uses. But I think one of the most ex unexpected names for God is this one. The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. It's not just that, that he is jealous. It's not just a character trait. It says this is his actual name. His name is Jealous. I wonder how that sounds to you. I, I remember when I first sort of encountered this verse and, and for the first time stopped to think about what this meant, I had to do some thinking about this. Right? Because jealousy for me is not a virtue. When I think of jealousy, I'm, I'm usually thinking of the bad kind of jealousy. I'm thinking of that, that ugly, green-eyed monster that's the, the petty, sort of very worldly emotion that we all have of saying, you know, I see what you have, 
and I want to have that for myself. And I am no longer content with what I have, and I'm no longer happy until I have what you have for myself. Whether that would be in, in relation to possessions, or experiences, or social standing, or professional standing, or whatever it may be, that, that's the kind of jealousy that we're all familiar with. Right? That's, that experience is not alien to any of us. We know what that is. It's, it's envy, it's covetousness, it's this breaking of the Tenth Commandment. Right? You shall not covet. That's exactly what jealousy so often is. And usually it flows out of our pride. Right? And, and it's accompanied usually by bitterness, by resentment, and by discontent. Uh, and it leads us usually to anger. It's a powerful emotion. It's a strong emotion. There's a reason Proverbs 27.4 says, Anger is cruel, fury is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy is a powerful emotion that we feel that, that can lead us to anger and beyond, even to do things that, that we would otherwise not do. And so that's what certainly comes into my mind when I hear jealousy, but that's only one type. There's, we might say it's kind of like the way the Bible talks about anger, right? It talks about anger as, as being a sin, but there's also a type of righteous anger. There's a bad anger and there's a godly anger. It's the same with jealousy. Uh, there's a, a bad jealousy, but there's also a type of godly jealousy that the Bible talks about. And godly jealousy is understood more as something like zeal to protect a covenant relationship. Zeal to protect a covenant relationship and to avenge it when it's been broken. So uh, we should think first of a, a marriage relationship. A marriage is a covenant, and a husband and a wife will feel a certain jealousy for the affections of their spouse. Because they are in a covenant relationship, the, the husband will feel jealous for the affections, for the, the love of his wife, that it should be given to him and should not be given to others. And that will be a very strong feeling of jealousy. And that kind of jealousy to, to protect that marriage relationship, right? to, to maintain the exclusivity of that marriage relationship, that is a good and a right and a godly type of jealousy. In fact, if that type of jealousy were not present in a marriage relationship, we would be very worried, and we should be very worried about that kind of relationship. If there's not a, a really strong desire to protect the, the bounds of that, we would think that would be a marriage that's in, in trouble, right? If, if, that, if you had a husband who no longer cared whether or not the wife was, was off flirting with other guys, or you had a wife who no longer cared if she knew where the husband was in the evenings. That would be a problem. We want married people to feel this kind of jealousy. That's a sign of health. And it's a sign of, of holiness and of wholeness of that marriage relationship. In fact, we might think of it this way. Jealousy is simply the active function of love. Jealousy is the active function of love particularly of love when it is being spurned. Right? A healthy love, if it is not uh, returned, will feel jealousy, and that jealousy is part of love. It's, the, it's love in action. And so that's what we think of then when we read this verse that says, the Lord, whose name is Jealous, 
is a jealous God because how does the Bible talk about our relationship with our covenant Lord? Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. Right? We are the bride of Christ. This is a, that, that's part of the reason why this marriage metaphor is so powerful. Because it describes what this covenant relationship that we have with God is like. That he has entered into this covenant relationship, this relationship with his people that's so frequently compared to a marriage. And as our husband, he is jealous for the affections of his people. Just like a husband yearns for the affections of his wife to be given to him and to, to him alone, so it is with the Lord he is jealous for the affections of his people. The affections of worship. Love, delight, joy. God says we, we, we can't just go around giving those kind of affections to other things other than the Lord our God. He is jealous for those sorts of things. Okay? And we're starting to see then why this is so potent, right? That God is revealing this name at this time to this people, right? Because when you give those affections to other people or other things other than the Lord your God, what is that called? It's idolatry. And the people are just coming out of this, this idolatrous sin with the golden calf. And God is saying that the thing that makes that sin so sinful, right? The thing that makes that so hateful, so odious in God's eyes is that he is simply jealous for the affections of his people and idolatry is when the people give those affections to something else. And that stirs God's jealousy to see his people worshiping the golden calf, right? And saying to that, you know, Aaron says to the people, behold your gods who brought you out of Egypt. And we see that idolatry, in this sense, we think about it this way, idolatry is not simply some sort of impersonal, right, philosophical kind of sin. From God's perspective, idolatry is very personal. Right? We don't have only to think of God, you know, up there on, on Sinai, looking down to the bottom of the mountain and seeing his people that he redeemed out of Egypt, saying, looking at this calf and saying, behold, these are our gods who brought us out of Egypt. That's stirring the Lord's jealousy over the affections of his people. It's like a spouse cheating on their lover is the effect of idolatry before the Lord. And so we see the Lord taking this very personally and he says that he is a jealous God because God's jealousy is the active function of his love for his people. If we, if we could imagine God not being angry over the sin of the golden calf, if we can imagine him not being distraught by, by any time that his people turn to other things, seek their meaning and their worth in something else, give all their love and affection to something else other than him, if he were not bothered by that, that would be a problem, wouldn't it? That would be a sign that he, he doesn't care, right? that he doesn't love his people, but... This says God is jealous for the affections of his people because he loves you, because he's entered into this covenant with you. And now he protects the exclusivity of this covenant relationship. He loves you. He's jealous for you. If God is therefore jealous and he's jealous for our affections, what do we do? Well, the passage gives us two things, sort of. There's, there's a what not to do, and then there is a what to do. The what not to do comes first, he says, first, 
uh, don't enter into covenants with the people of the land. This is verse 13. He says, You shall tear down their altars, break their pillars, cut down their ashram. It continues in verse 15. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Uh, when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you're invited, you eat of the sacrifice and you take their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods as well. Now, he's saying that they are not to make a covenant with the people of the land, but, but notice in this warning that, that there's a certain progression. There's a certain progression that takes place. He says, first of all, when you get into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, first thing is you're to tear down the altars and these pillars of the nations. Right, so these ashram and these altars that the nations have are, are the places of the worship of their false gods. And he says, the very first thing you do, tear them down. Tear them down. Because if not, you might decide to enter into a covenant with them. And if you enter into a covenant with them, then eventually you're going to whore after their gods. Now, that's one of those words we don't use in church enough, isn't it? But do you notice it's a relational word? Right? It's not a religious word. He's talking about idolatry. He's talking about his people going after the pagan gods, but he doesn't talk about it in sort of this religious idolatry sense. He's talking about it in relational words. Right? In the words that we use to describe the breaking of covenants. We know that word from the breaking of marriage covenants. And God uses the same language for his people's unfaithfulness. But th there's this progression, right? First, okay, you were unfaithful in the little things. You didn't tear down the pillars and the altars, these ashram poles. So, therefore, the people remained and you decided to make a covenant with them. You know, they're here, we're here, no big deal, we'll make a covenant. Well, then what? Okay, your children are going to start to intermarry. They're both in the land. And eventually, what's going to happen is you're going to go after their gods. You're going to go after them. Right? And by the time you get to this end point, this intermarrying of, of the sons and the daughters with the sons and the daughters of the other nations, eventually there's no longer going to be any distinctions between Israel and the nations. You're just going to be one kind of amorphous glob of people all together. Right? There's no distinctions. No one can tell who is who. And at that point, Israel is just a, a, another pagan nation committing idolatry against the one true God. But here's the thing. That's not where God's warning begins. Right? He doesn't begin with that. He backs up all the way to the beginning. He says, first, don't even permit the presence of their altars in your midst. Because that's where it begins. You're not going to wake up one day and all of a sudden all your children have intermingled and intermarried with each other. You got there by a certain series of steps and it begins with the fact that perhaps you were not diligent enough to tear down all the altars when you first got into the land. Right? You don't begin with the full-on idolatry. It begins with the little things begins with the small little compromises. You know, hey, we're in the land, they're in the land, let's, you know, live and let live. And the first compromise is, okay, well, you know, we won't worship these false gods, but we'll allow their presence. Even though the Lord has told them here in Exodus that they are to break them down, they should not allow the false worship sites to remain, the first compromise is, listen, we're just going to allow them. We won't worship them, but we'll allow them to exist. And then there's all these steps down the road, right? It's just one small step at a time until you get to full-blown idolatry. 
And the Lord, whose name is Jealous, sees this progression from beginning to end, and he says, don't even make the first compromise. Don't even make that first little step when you get into the lane, because he knows exactly where that leads. And so what's, what's fascinating about this passage, I think the question for us from this story is not simply, are you an idolater? Are you engaging in idolatry when you get home in the evenings? The question is much more searching than that. I think the question is, uh, are you allowing the small compromises in your life that you say, you know, it's small, it's no big deal. I'm not an idolater or something bad like that. This is just a little compromise. And yet, five years down the road, that is going to have, have... grown and blossomed and bloomed into full-blown idolatry. Because most of us aren't going to walk headlong into idolatry. We're not going to wake up one morning and just say, you know, Jesus is good, but I'm going to try idolatry for a day. That's not the way it works. There's a series of small steps that begin with little compromises that eventually are going to lead somewhere. They they take us places. And so we make these little decisions, right? Maybe it's this there's just this little compromise that says, you know, um, in, in this one, just for this one time, um, you know, my reputation, I really have to make compromises on, on worship and on living faithfully to protect my reputation because there's this job offer that I need to go for. And it's just a one-time thing. Or maybe it's this one-time decision that, um, you know, just this once, uh, you know, we're going to prioritize something else over Jesus. Recreation is going to take priority this time. And we just, you know, they're little things at first. But when we're faced every day with these small decisions that that on a regular basis, they don't seem like a big deal at the time, but but those are decisions that come home to roost in your life. Five years down the road or, or ten years down the road. And so the instruction is not, you know, don't do idolatry. The instruction is cut down the poles. Remove the altars from the land as soon as you get there. So, that, so God says, first, here's what you don't do, and now second, here's what you do do. Here's what you do do, because God is jealous. He desires the affection of our whole hearts. Uh, and so he reiterates part of his law for Israel. And it's not the whole thing. Uh, he doesn't even go straight to the Ten Commandments, although he does begin with, with one of them. In verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. That one seemed particularly apropos at the time, I suppose. Um, but here's the laws that God does reiterate. It's not all of them. He gives a selection. And I think the selection, there's a criteria. <laughs> here's the criteria. How do you schedule your life in such a way that it will reflect and nurture your heart's love for God? I think that's the question that these instructions, these laws that that God gives to his people is answering. How do you schedule your life in such a way that it will reflect and nurture your heart's love for God? And so, just like your, your heart's love for God can be lost through this very small progression of small steps, small compromises that, that lead somewhere over time, I think the opposite is also just as true. That when we are growing our heart's love for God, when we're trying to nurture our faith and grow our hearts, it's not going to happen in, in big leaps and bounds. Right? It's, it's small decisions. 
It's small things that will also take root and also will come home to roost in a more positive way. Right? That, that eventually take root in our lives and over time will begin to bear fruit. It doesn't happen all at once. It's happening in small steps. And so, <clears throat> again, I think the question is if we want to look at our life 10 years from now, and if you want to look at your family's life 10 years from now, and, and you have this desire to say, okay, you know, here's who I want us to be at, you know, as an individual, as a family, 10 years down the road, we can't wait nine years and say, okay, let's get there. It's going to be a result of the small, tiny decisions that we're making today. It's going to be small, regular, daily, weekly commitments that bear fruit over time. Uh, it's planting trees. Right? It's not annuals. It's, it's things that grow slowly. And so let me just point out two of these commandments. There's, an, there's a bunch of commandments that God sort of reiterates for his people, but let's just look at, at two of them. More specifically, he tells them that they shall keep the feast and that they shall keep the rest. Keep the feast and keep the rest. First, verse 18, he tells them that they shall keep the feast. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you. At the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. So this is the Passover, right? Feast of unleavened bread is another word for the Passover, God is telling his people that they are to keep the Passover feast. Now, we have to remember, this law is not just given to the people sort of in a vacuum. Right? God didn't just sort of randomly pick and choose. Here's a couple laws I'm going to kind of pull out um, from the bigger law sections to give again, but he's chosen these very specifically. Right? He's giving this law to a very particular people at a particular time that are, are dealing with particular sins. Right? So just a, a chapter before they've built this golden calf and they've worshipped that as being the God that brought them out of Egypt. And so God says, well, first, don't make any gods of cast metal. But second, he says, keep the feast of the Passover. To this people, this particular people, who is struggling with idolatry and, and attributing their salvation to a golden calf, God says, be careful to regularly keep the feast of Passover. Why? Because in the Passover, they are, are, are corporately and regularly gathering to, uh, to orient their lives around the salvation of God. Right? That's what the feast of Passover is for. It's this huge annual event in which you orient your entire life, your entire schedule for that month around the great redeeming acts of God and saving you out of Egypt. That's the point of Passover, to remember that God is the one who saved them out of slavery, and he redeemed them by the blood of the lamb. And they go through that whole drama of, of slaughtering the lamb and taking the blood and putting it on the doorposts and, and eating the meat in haste, right, with their belt buckled around their waist and their shoes on their feet because they're reliving the events of their salvation. They're reliving the good news that God is the God of, redeem, of redemption, of bringing them out of Egypt. And they are to celebrate that regularly. Why? Because God knows our hearts. He knows the hearts of his people are prone to wander. And so he tells them, here's the antidote for your wandering hearts. The best antidote to a wandering heart is to keep the gospel at the center of your life together. Right? Isn't that what Passover is all about? God knows that this golden calf is not just some 
unique kind of one-off mistake that the people certainly won't do again. No, he knows better. He knows that we're prone to this kind of thing, right? We'll repeat that in all kinds of ways, big ways, little tiny ways. And so what we need is we need to build up immunity to this sort of thing. And God says we do that by regularly gathering with God's people to worship him for his saving grace. Because that's what the Feast of Passover is. And that's what we do as well. We gather regularly in worship to renew our covenant with the Lord, to, to orient our lives around our salvation, or around the redeeming grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. That's why it's important. That's why God is saying, keep the feast. Keep the feast. Don't let those moments of corporate worships just fade away. Don't let those slide out of your lives. Don't let them lose their priority. Keep the feast because that's how you schedule your life and that's how, that's how you build priorities. That's how you are uh, teaching your own heart about what matters most. You keep the feast of God. <clears throat> now, he says, keep the feast. Next, he says, keep the rest. This is verse 21. Keep the rest. Verse 21 Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. Now for those scoring at home, this is the fourth time in Exodus that God has given the Sabbath command. And it's not the last. There's going to be more. Six days you work, on the seventh day you shall rest. Because the seventh day is holy unto the Lord. And they are to rest. They're not to go about their own business on that day. They're not to go about their own desires or recreations. That day is holy to the Lord. Now, and notice what God says. Notice the next sentence. Still verse 21. In plowing time and in harvest, you shall rest. God specifically singles out the two very busiest times of the year for this agrarian society. And, and he says, during those times, you are to rest on the Sabbath day. Now, why does God sing, single out the two busiest times of the year? Because those are the two times of the year when they would have been most tempted to make compromises, to make the little compromises, to say, you know what? It's harvest. It's plowing time. You know what? I'm so busy right now. You all know how dedicated I am to the Sabbath during the summer and during the winter, but, I, but this is plowing time. I'm so busy right now. I'm just going to have to get this weed in right before the rains come. So just this once. God says specifically, in plowing time and in harvest, you are to observe the day of rest. He says to his people, don't even allow yourselves to make those small compromises because that's the first step. And, and that first step will seem to us like it's no big deal, but God knows where steps lead. And the Lord is jealous for our affections. And he doesn't want us to make the small compromises that inevitably lead to the bigger ones. And he says this because he's your covenant husband, your covenant Lord, and he loves you with an everlasting love and he has this strong covenantal jealousy that we would live our lives and give our hearts and all of our affections back to him, not to others. And observing that day of rest, even in the busiest times of life, is simply a way of saying to God, God, I love you more than fill in the blank. 
more than whatever else it is that is casting so strongly for my affections, for my time, for my priorities. And God is saying, at the center of your corporate life together is, is uh, these observances of my grace. And that when you keep the feast and you keep this day of rest, that what you're doing is you're exalting yourselves in the grace of God. And, and you're taking the time to very intentionally and specifically set aside, intentionally setting aside all the other things of life and saying, there is nothing that is more worthy of our attention than to celebrate the grace of God given to us. Isn't that just as true for us today? That, that it has a an impact on our lives, that it makes a difference in our lives when we gather together and we commit ourselves to this time of worship, to gathering around God's throne and praising him for his grace given to us in Christ. And to say that we give all of the love of our hearts, all the affections of our hearts to the Lord and to him alone. He is jealous for that. He delights in that. Because the Lord is jealous for the affections of his people. And that applies not only in big things, golden calf moments, but in these little, these little steps. And so he says, here's what you don't do. You don't make the small compromises. And here's what you do do. You, you commit yourself, you orient your life around the worship of God and his grace. Re- renewing our covenant with him. Reorienting our lives around his grace practicing it, re, uh, rehearsing it. We rehearse his grace in our lives to draw our hearts to him as the antidote for letting our hearts be drawn away from him. Let's pray together. Father, we're, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you are, in fact, a jealous God, that you are a God who knows your people, who cares about your people, who loves your people. We're thankful that you, therefore, uh, care about us and you care about our our response to your grace and our obedience so father we pray that you would continue now by the power of your spirit to impress the words of this passage on our hearts lord may you teach us may you grow us may you change us by the power of your spirit at work in our hearts we pray these things in jesus name amen